Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And so, after another one of my famous extended breaks, welcome back everybody! I'm going to try and keep the preamble short. Today, just a little bit of background about where the story I'm going to tell came from. For today, I'll be telling you a tale of witchcraft from the north of England. Now, I was originally looking for a story from Todmorden to go with a live storytelling event I did there at the Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic. It's very good. You should go. And I stumbled upon this story, first recorded by podcast favourite 19th century folklorist John Roby. Now, Technically, this isn't actually a Todmorden story. It's set close by, but not in Todmorden itself. And really, despite some county boundary changes that have happened after it was set, it's a Lancashire tale. But despite the fact it's not really a Todd story, I'm telling it now in the vein of, well, close enough. And one day, you might get a proper Todmorden tale from me. So, all that said, let's begin the story of... The Witch of Eagle's Crag Or, if you prefer, The Lady of Burnshaw Tower This is a tale set in the Borderlands, between Todmorden in the south and Burnley in the north. That is, between Yorkshire and Lancashire. Though at the time of its telling, this was firmly Lancashire proper. But since then, Yorkshire has crept ever closer. In fact, running through the centre of Todmorden, a few miles south of Burnshaw Tower, is actually the historic border between these two counties. These two counties have a long history of rivalry. But now Todmorden is firmly in Yorkshire, and that border pretty much crosses across the district, which sees the action of this story. You could therefore call the setting a liminal place, and as a storyteller and a kind of folklorist, I'm pretty much honour bound to do so. This is a landscape of deep valleys, rolling hills, woodlands and rivers, and of course, great grassy rocky moors, which I should also call windswept, as I'm bound to do that as well. The district today very much has the words post-industrial hovering around any attempt to describe it. For in the 19th century, the collection of small towns and villages which lie in the bottom of the valleys became the centre of an international cotton industry which reshaped both the globe and Lancashire. Canals, coal mines, mills, chimneys, railways, factories, row upon row of sandstone terrace houses, all surrounded by the hills, and, for much of the year, under great grey clouds. For a little over a century, this was a bustling, noisy, smoke-filled place. And then, gradually, all this ceased, and today the place is characterised by the remnants of its industrial past. The beast is dead, and the people live amongst its bones. Though of course things have not stayed still, and I could talk a lot about how time has moved on, but to keep this brief, I feel that what I should highlight of most interest to listeners is that Todmorden 
has become the UK's UFO capital, with numerous sightings and one well-attested murder at potentially alien hands, dating to 1980. But for this tale, we go in the other direction, chronologically. Back through industrialisation, to a time before its power had forever marked these valleys as its own. And we find the land different again. Small rural communities in the main, dominated by a few vast landed estates of the wealthy gentry. Not quite as wealthy as the gentry of the south, of course, but nevertheless in possession of sizeable estates, hunting grounds and farmlands on which the peasantry toiled. Fortified houses and castles were numerous, a callback to the wars between England and Scotland, which, though largely ended with the union of the two crowns, nevertheless shaped even this area, far south from the borderlands. And of course, outside of those farmed areas, the hamlets and the manor houses, were those lonely moors. And in the valleys, there were not just woodlands as today, but vast, dense forests. The rich and poor of Lancashire alike, while they may have not found much common interest between them, shared a fairly justified reputation for being a source of radicalism, of subversion. Lancashire was a home for those who fell outside English norms. Catholics were at large, in an age where revolution and invasion by Catholic powers was a constant worry for the monarchy. Many of the rich and powerful of the county still subscribed to the old ways, though of course mostly in secret. While amongst the poorer residents, well, they had a reputation for even darker arts than Catholicism. Accusations of witchcraft flowed. The dark, satanic, ritual kind, not any of your cunning person herbalist magic this. These witches were the evil, soul-selling sort. To many observers, it seemed that the Pope and Satan both had a strong hold upon Lancashire, and most of them observed that this was, of course, because the two were one and the same. And this is the canvas on which our story shall be painted. Now, I have been accused in the past of being biased or unfair in my attitude to historical stories, of bringing my own modern interpretation, and, most importantly, my own subjective, sanctimonious judgments onto these stories from the past, applying modern-day morals without taking into account things as they were at the time. And honestly, that is a fair cop. I don't intend to tell these stories exactly as written, and I certainly interpret them through my own particular, undisguised value system. I want to be clear to you that I am not a reliable narrator, and not only in the sense that I often give up on narration entirely to wander off into, well, well, rambling discussions about storytelling and whatever else takes my fancy, just like this one. We haven't even really started yet, have we? Case in point. But no, I am an unreliable narrator in other ways too. And for some tellers of this tale, there is little ambiguity. It is clearly about the good of God and the unambiguous wickedness of temptation by the forces of darkness. But taking the actual events of the story into account, I find it very difficult to believe that. And so, disappointingly to some listeners I'm sure, I shall once again tell this story with my, let's not say biases, though surely they are, but instead my sympathies, my woke pinko sympathies brazenly displayed upon my sleeves. Shameless as ever. So, all that said, let's really start the story. At the end.
The story finishes on Eagle's Crack. On the night of Halloween. The crag is a large, bare, rocky outcrop that juts out from the edge of a great ravine, overlooking villages in the valley far below. This is a land of many such great ravines amongst the hills, but the crag stands out amongst them, prominent in the moonlight. Now you might expect that people would be inside on such an eve, given the reputation afforded to that auspicious night of Halloween, when the boundaries between worlds are passable, when the ghosts, the boggarts, the fairies are all at their most powerful. It would seem to be a good time to remain indoors, to wait it out until the morning, protecting yourself, not just with the physical barrier of your house, but with whatever blessings, charms, or other magical prophylactics you could procure. That would seem to be the sensible course of action. But there's always one, isn't there? This night the one was a peasant, wandering abroad, who was to bear witness to a phantasmal tableau atop the crag, which formed a stage on which a brief drama was played out. A spectral huntsman astride a horse charged across the crag, a huge ghostly hound at his side. Their quarry was a deer that ran at full pelt from them, shining with the same unearthly luminescence as its pursuers. The deer reached the edge of the crag, and it did not stop, but leapt into the night sky. The terrified peasant, who seemed surprised to see something of that ilk on Halloween, crossed himself at the sight and muttered a prayer, just as the hound leapt off the crag after the deer. They hung in the air, and all the figures faded from sight. The watching peasant knew what the scene was showing, of course, the witch of Burnshaw Tower, Lady Sybil, the woman whose reputation the peasant knew well from tales told to him in childhood. A wicked, terrible woman, a stereotype of diabolical evil, who no doubt well deserved to be chased so. And the scene fades. Let's now go back to the start of the story. It was a century or so before, and that same Lady Sybil was standing atop Eagle Crag, looking out at the valley below. It was a beautiful day. Blue sky, sun shining brightly and warm, fluffy white clouds, the woods below a glorious variety of green hues. But truth be told, every day outside was a beautiful day for Lady Sybil. She found something to admire in each and every moment she was able to roam the glens, the moors and the hills that surrounded her home. Be it in the dramatic mists and rain, the vast stillness of the snows, amongst the bright buds on a spring morning, or the philomots of an autumnal evening. Even in the harsh winter winds that roared through Cliverger Valley, she was thrilled by the elemental fury. Lady Sybil took it all in, washed herself in it. She was awestruck and held a deep and abiding love for and connection to the natural world all around her. And by some lucky circumstance of fate, she was much able to indulge her solitary passion for exploring hidden streams, soaking in the vastness of the starry sky, or listening in rapture to the cries of the curlew, the swan and the plover. For she lived alone in Burnshaw Tower, Tower perhaps being a misnomer, 
Think not of the tall round towers of Rapunzel, but rather a large-ish house. Not some grand manor, but certainly bigger than most. Tall and with reinforced walls, crenellations on the roof, and perhaps even a small turret. A minor moat surrounded it. This was one of those fortified houses I mentioned earlier. And the young Lady Sybil could call it her own, where she lived alone. Except, of course, for a few servants to support her. People as invisible to the narrator of this story originally as they were to the wealthy Lady Sybil. The people who enabled her to wander freely. And while we can surmise from this that some tragedy must have taken her family away, the details are unknown. What we do know is that the young lady had an independence, unusual at any time, and certainly then. And she used this to indulge her passion for nature to the fullest. Oh, for this to continue. Oh, for this free nature-loving spirit to live her best hippie life, absent a VW campervan and lies about being at Woodstock, and only because those had not been invented yet. Oh, if only she could while away all her days as such. But the dictative story demands that the ordinary world be left behind, that change happens, plot points and narrative development, the character must be subject to adversity, or else the story shall grow lean, wither and die. And you and I, listener, shall be left with nothing that binds us together, sitting in silence, me without a word to say, you without a word to hear. And that shall not do. What a ridiculous activity this would be. So I must feed the hungry story its grisly morsels, watching its growing corpulence as it demands ever more. And as you continue to listen, you are complicit. You could stop now, prevent this. But no, you do not. We are in it together, you and I. We are cooperating to satiate the story, to give in to its horrible demands. Lady Sybil was atop Eagle's Crag as the sun was going down. It was late summer, and she was at the very edge of the precipice and the vast expanse of valley and sky was laid out in front of her. And as she thought of the days ahead, days filled with the realities of human affairs, I know not what, but simply the day-to-day matters that must concern us all at times, even her. She felt a particular desire to leave all that behind her. One human life seemed far too small for her, and so she cried out into that aesthetic void. She cried at the clouds, blood-red in the setting sun. Oh, were but I a cloud, carried upon the wind, the whole sky my path to walk! for she had a decidedly poetic soul, did Lady Sybil. Now the dusk was still and calm, but as Lady Sybil's words drew to a close, a breeze picked up, flattening the grass before it. Goosebumps rose on Lady Sybil's neck, and a thrill of illicit terror suddenly coursed through her. She knew, absolutely and unquestionably, that she was no longer alone. And yet... She could see nobody. When she spoke, she did so hesitantly this time, softly, not quite believing it, scared of looking foolish in front of herself. Who art thou? she said, for her speech was of an old-timey kind as well as her spirit poetic. The breeze wound around her, passing over her skin. Who art thou? she repeated. 
and the breeze came now on her cheek, hot against her face. Show yourself, she finally cried out, not scared, but excited. A mist curled up from the ground and around her, and for an instant there was before her a flickering flame as red as the setting sun and as big as herself. But she blinked, and it was gone, and in its place, in front of her, was a man. Or not quite, for he was more than a man. Taller, more composed, his eyes glowed with flickering flames, and despite all of this power, he was also insubstantial somehow, as if this mighty figure was not truly there at all. And this phased Lady Sybil surprisingly little. I ask you again, who art thou? I am a good spirit, and should you wish it, I will grant your desires. What would you wish for, Lady Sybil, if it was in my power to grant it? Others might have been perturbed, but Lady Sybil, Lady Sybil understood the assignment. A mysterious man who appears asking what you want is no common trifle. It is an opportunity and without hesitation she replied boldly and certainly, Let my thought be motion. Give me power to match my will. Essentially a request for unlimited power couched in poetic terms. But if you're going to make a request of some unknown spirit who's appeared in front of you magically, why not just go all in, right? That was her philosophy anyway. For a moment there was silence. And then... No words passed between them, but she heard a whoosh as of mighty wings, and then she was flying through the sky. No fear accompanied it. It came as easy to her as breathing, and she looked down. She could see the whole world laid out under her. Her eyes sparkled as she beheld this bird's-eye view of creation. She wheeled and she soared and she felt the evening air against her skin, and she laughed in delight. And she awoke, to find herself back on the crag with a self-declared spirit. She knew now what he offered was true. He took her hand in his, and she did not resist. There came a sudden sharp pain in her finger, and he raised her hand to her face and she saw blood on the tip. Together, she and he took the hand to her forehead and daubed blood upon it, and where it touched, it burned with an intense agony, and she shrieked a little, but she did not pull away. She resolved to continue, and a word was slowly written on her forehead. And with this knowledge passed between them, the terms of the agreement, an agreement seared into her consciousness, and an agreement she accepted wholeheartedly. The exact clauses are not to be revealed, but her desire for near-limitless power was granted, with but one exception. And that was that on the Feast of All Hallows, she, like all the witches whose exalted rank she was now joining, would be powerless save for a very specific clause that on that day she could take any form that she wished, 
in order to hide, should it be necessary. But everything else, it was hers. And that was it, done. Already the pain started to fade, the spirit disappeared in an instant, and Sybil found herself the possessor of mighty powers indeed. Did she stand on that hilltop and laugh maniacally as storm clouds appeared from nothingness and lightning forked around her? It would make sense, but, you know, it didn't really seem to be her style. Oh, what she could do with such might! She had the power now to put herself in domination over all the nations of the earth, to subjugate humanity to her own will. Phenomenal cosmic power, undreamed of throughout the ages, was now all hers to command. We saw in a previous episode the terrible things a shoemaker did with but a fraction of the abilities that Lady Burnshaw now possessed. The world would surely be remade in her design, starting with Eagle Crag, Todmorden, and then all of Lancashire. This was to be a new age, the age of Lady Sybil. And perhaps all that would have come to pass if she had been a man. And oh yes, I can already hear the cries of not all men and some women like world conquest too. But on balance, I think Lady Sybil's gender is probably the most important factor, if not the only one, in the people of Lancashire awaking the morning after this momentous covenant was entered into and finding the world exactly the same as it was the night before. The sun rose, the dawn chorus welcomed the day, the sheep bleated, the radicals dreamed of a better life, and the agents of the state plotted to make sure that was never possible. And nobody noticed anything different at all, perhaps with the slight exception of Lady Sybil's servants. They found their mistress returned from the precipice, a woman far happier than the one who had left the day before. And they did not question why, from that day forth, she seemed to have no more of those trifles of life that had distracted her so much beforehand. No duties, no cares, every day she spent outside in the nature she adored so. And often she could not be found, even at night. And while this caused worry at first, she always returned home in the end, and they grew used to this. For it really does seem that this young woman changed little about her life and nothing at all about the world. The story is silent, however, on all the places she visited and the things that she saw. But I, for one, believe that her days were full of the type of wholesome exploration of the world, which would be the envy of David Attenborough. No corner of the land, sea or sky was left unexplored. She swam with turtles, ran with gazelles, soared with albatross, traversing the whole of this beautiful blue planet. The montage of all of this, rendered of course in ultra high definition, with an inspiring soundtrack and impressive foley work to match. She returned home periodically to Burnshaw Tower. Her life good and complete and the cut on the finger and the occasional pain in the forehead was the only reminder of how she had gained her heart's true and honest desires. Now, 
I'm not going to entirely ignore the question of the nature of this quote-unquote spirit. Obviously, despite introducing himself as such, the standard interpretation of the events I've just related is certainly that the man was at least a demon and is quite possibly the devil himself, though given that most times we meet the devil in folklore, he mostly gets his arse handed to him, it's less likely to be him. And I concede that yes, that is the likely explanation. But is it possible that he was simply a very kind and powerful spirit? Well, to bolster that case, I'd say that not everything adds up here, because most witches who made deals with the devil, well, they didn't get powers of world-breaking magnitude from it, for they mostly lived their lives as poor people in their communities. And so this seems odd. Why was Lady Sybil so blessed? Blessed is probably the wrong word to use here, but you know what I mean. Was it precisely because this demon or devil or spirit knew she wouldn't use them? Maybe, I suppose, but it doesn't quite add up. And if this was diabolical, then what exactly was the end game here? Her soul for so much? Seems atypical, a high price to pay for one soul here. Does the devil even really have such power? A whole host of questions open themselves up here with no answers. Now the whole point of this aside, apart from of course me desperately trying not to portray Lady Sybil as evil, something I'm keen to do because she does nothing actually evil, is to highlight the disparity between her powers and the powers of other witches, a fact that did not go unnoticed by those other witches. And in Lancashire, there were a great many other witches. So while Lady Sybil was gruntled with her bargain, at least one witch was, understandably, rather pissed off about the whole situation. Well, it smacked of plain unfairness. And well, who could have predicted that evil powers and the Prince of Lies might deal unfairly? Completely unpredictable stuff, that. Not right. But this meant that as the young and almost limitlessly powerful Lady Sybil went on enjoying the life of an eternal trust fund baby on a gap year, but like more classy and genuinely spiritual than that, well, she was, unbeknownst to herself, creating enemies. Beknownst to her, however, was her admirer. And I say admirer here, but that is perhaps too gentle and becoming a description for Lord William Townley. Creep, stalker, obsessive, all these words might have been better applied. He was the inhabitant of Hapton Tower, another fortified house in the vicinity, and he was one of the lesser members of the powerful Townley family, who dominated Lancashire for centuries and were also some of those aforementioned Catholic holdouts, with priest holes and all that good stuff. Not that any of that was really a particular concern of Lord William Townley. He was more focused on his compulsive obsession with Lady Sybil. Not only did she look absolutely divine, somewhat ironically there, but she also seemed always happy, and importantly, she didn't make excuses and flee from him at the earliest opportunity as most women did though he did not know that the reason for that was solely that the power she had acquired meant she feared him less than other women. She occupied his every thought. She had a tower, he had a tower. She was a lady, he was a lord. In his narrow, misogynistic, entitled worldview, this was surely destined to be. 
So when he made his overtures of love, sending a servant with a message saying something like, I really fancy you, want a shag? Or the equivalent for the time. He fully expected his advances to be accepted, for his feelings to be returned. He was a townly, not one of the best, but a townly nonetheless. And yet, they were not returned. Time and time again he tried this technique, and time and time again he was rebuffed by Lady Sybil, who, I frankly think, barely noticed him. So little did he matter to her, given the powers she wielded. And should she have chosen to wield them in his direction? rather than continuing to use them simply for the enrichment of her own life, should she have used them in the other way, to control others, him, then her easy dismissal of Lord William Townley would have been entirely justified. But she did not. It just wasn't what she did, wasn't who she was. And so Lord William had ample time and space to plot. Now, how exactly it transpired that Lord William ended up at the foreboding door to Mother Helston's strange house, I do not know. Did the old woman hear of his need, see an opportunity, reach out to him? Or did he know that Lady Sybil had magics of her own and think, to catch a thief takes a thief? Or was he simply frustrated by all conventional attempts at wooing that he quickly turned to the services of black magic as the next logical step in his warped mind. It does not really matter. The upshot of it all was that one night dark, stormy, dripping with pathetic fallacy, he found himself at the gate of Mother Helston's... Well, cottage? That wasn't the right word. A hut, maybe? But even that didn't quite describe the crooked structure that was built into a cleft in a cliff a place that was said to be the home of malign spirits encouraged by the owner of the rock hut. He raised the latch on the gate, proceeded towards what we will call a hut. It was cloaked in darkness. Hello, he called out. Hello, 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 came the echo from the cliffs all around him. And else? Silence. Not even the cry of a crow. He waited called out again. Just as he turned to leave, he heard a voice from right beside his ear. Lord William, you are bold to come to me after nightfall. He jumped, but only slightly. Whatever else Lord William was, and he certainly was a lot else, he was not a coward. He got straight down to business. Mother Helston, yes. She indicated in the affirmative. I seek a bride. A bride who has rejected me time and time again. Me, Lord William Townley. I seek the maiden of Burnshaw Tower to be mine. Can you give me some charm, some potion, some talisman to make her mine? Now, I've talked on the podcast before about the differences between On one hand, the witches in stories like this one, evil people who generally do not make themselves well known. And on the other hand, the very real cunning folk who provided all kinds of help to their community in various magical ways. And Mother Helston was most distinctly not a cunning person, but a witch. However, Townley was treating her like one might treat a cunning person, coming and consulting with her, asking for her help. 
and perhaps at other times Mother Helston would have turned him down, perhaps viciously so. But it was the case that she was one of those aforementioned witches with a bit of a grudge against the supremely powerful and seemingly innocent Lady Sybil. And this was the opportunity she had been waiting for. So she changed her tack entirely, dropped all those acts of intimidation, and instead took Lord William under her wing as an ally. Charms! I wish I had charms for her! But no, all of my spells against her are helpless. They would fizzle out like like a match in a thunderstorm when exposed to her power. I cannot give you charms to win her. But if I can, I shall help you have her though it will not be easy for you to do. You might not succeed, and the attempt shall be perilous. But that not being a coward came into play again, and combined with the intensity of William's lusting after this woman who wanted him not, he did not hesitate. Tell me, I shall do it. Whatever needs done, whatever. Then come with me, Lord William. We have preparations to attend to. A burst of flame came from Mother Helston's hands, and the bright orange against the heavy darkness made for a portrait of dramatic chiaroscuro. The camera zooms out, and the scene fades. And it is left as an exercise to the listener to fill in the dark events that happened that evening. Blasphemous incantations, forbidden rituals, bloody rites. And when Lord William returned home in the dawn light of the next misty morning, he was a changed man. He, who was really doing nothing to dispel the stereotypes of old Catholic families being associated with witchcraft, was now focused on one thing, a date, All Hallows Day. For thanks to Mother Helston, he had a plan and the power to carry it out. Lady Sybil continued completely unawares, using her limitless powers to joyfully explore the beautiful world all around her, smelling the flowers, saying hello to the animals, generally being happy and content and fulfilled. While Mother Helston counted down the days gleefully, and Lord William continued to creepily stalk the object of his quote-unquote affections and plan for All Hallows Day. For him, the time passed agonisingly slowly. Day followed night followed day. The months passed. And eventually, it was the 1st of November. All Hallows Day. Now, now was the time. Lord William, who had lived but a half-life for so many months, swung into action. The plans he had been preparing for so long burst into motion. Those schemes hatched in darkness with that wicked witch. He led a great hunting party out that day, not consisting of the regular gentlemen who one would expect to be part of a hunt, but a vast train of servants and locals who he generously and uncharacteristically offered the opportunity to join him on the hunt. Some of the best trappers and huntsmen in the district they were. Out they went into the wild country, through the forests of Rossendale, the Great Hunt Road, thunderous hoofbeats, the baying of hounds, shouts of the men, and above all the shrill calls of the hunting horns, flushing out their quarry before them, with just one man knowing the true purpose of this wicked expedition on this holiest of days. 
And if Lord William had been entertaining any doubts about whether the bargain he struck many months ago was still valid or not, well, those doubts were allayed when, at the head of the party, he found that he was suddenly accompanied by a dog he did not recognise. A dog that turned at one point to look at him, fixing him with a gaze of recognition and acknowledgement. Possessed clearly of an intelligence far beyond that of a usual dog, it covered the ground of a speed and surety far faster than any animal the Lord had ever seen before. It outpaced the hunt, running ahead of them. The creepy stalker leading it knew what to do. Follow that dog, he ordered. And the hunt took after the animal that kept easily ahead of them. Down into Cliviger Gorge it led them. And they rode hard, over moors and fells and round the hills known locally as pikes. The dog had clearly got a scent. And it seemed to some of the huntsmen as if it was leading them to Burnshaw Tower, well known as the home of the eccentric, but harmless, or so it was assumed, Lady Sybil. And it was as they got very close to that fortified tower that suddenly, very suddenly, the object of the chase appeared. A white doe that was so close to the dog out in front, it baffled all how they had only seen it now, particularly as its coat was shining bright in the grey day, a radiance unlike any they had seen before. A few of the men couldn't help themselves but cry out at the sheer beauty of the creature as she bounded away from the party at a fair incredible speed and dexterity. But as for Lord William, he cried out with a sick joy. It was just as promised. He would have her. But that strange dog in front didn't seem able to quite catch the deer despite its own clear supernatural swiftness, for the shimmering white doe was nimble, turning this way and that, leaping from rock to rock, and the dog was constantly wrong-footed. Lord William urged on his huntsman, as it became obvious to one and all, that the doe was approaching the treacherous edge of the crags, with the valley far below. And the deer was now making a straight line for the precipice of Eagle's Crag itself, a narrow rocky outcrop jutting out into the air. One after another, huntsmen cried to their horses in terror, pulled on the reins, Whoa! and shouted to their dogs to stop for fear they would go over. All that is except for Lord William Townley. The strange hound was just ahead of him now, and as his companions fell away, the vast sky was all that he could see in front of him, and his stomach turned, in a way not dissimilar to that of women meeting his unwanted advances. But you cannot say he wasn't resolute. Despite the sudden wave of vertigo, he said to himself, if she's over the crag, we've lost her. And with a final burst of effort, he willed his horse onwards, and the dog with him leapt and the deer placed its foot on the very edge of the crag and turned. The scene goes to slow motion. The doe, bright and pure, is bounding into the air, and as she soars there is a moment where she almost hangs in the sky. Valleys spread out below her, pursuers sure to hurtle over the cliff. It remains like that for a moment, frozen. And then there is a terrible growl, and jaws fasten around her hind legs, and time snaps back. The dog and the doe fall back to the crag together. Lord William turns his horse at the very last instant. Rocks are dislodged, fall from the edge, but his steed remains upright as the dog wrestles the doe, pinning her down. And these two animals that are not animals at all, 
they roll together on the grass. And now Lord William is off his shocked horse. In one hand he carries his horsewhip, and as the dog makes to bite down on the throat of the deer, Lord William suddenly turns on it, beating it, cursing it, driving it off. The hound snarls at him, barks ferociously, but he doesn't give up. His erstwhile ally is driven off. The beautiful doe now struggles to get up, but Lord William produces a strange thing, as advised, a silken noose taken from his saddle. And with one smooth motion, he slings it over the neck of the stricken deer. All was quiet. The dog was gone, and Lord William was now returning to Hapton Tower, leading the meek doe by that silken noose. The hunt was done. No word on how the rest of the hunting party reacted to this turn of events. If they, you know, continued on for a bit got some actual hunting done, or, upon seeing the death-defying capture of the deer, which was now very much alive and being led around on a silken lead, maybe they just looked at each other with a nobles, am I right? with an accompanying eye-roll, and then shrugged, made for various inns and hostelries to have some drinks and mock the eccentricities of the upper classes. That night, over Hapton Tower, there came a storm with a ferocity to launch the projects of a thousand mad scientists. The winds screamed like a choir of hellbound souls, the turrets rocked to thunderclaps, and lightning flashes seen through windows illuminated William, ascending a spiral staircase to the highest point of the house. Wild and haggard he looked, seeming now to be on a precipice of a different kind, of pure madness. As the final stroke of the midnight bell trembled in his ears, he flung open the door to a lofty chamber, and there she was, Lady Sybil, naked save a silken noose around her neck, sobbing, power, all gone. And Lord William did not disappoint. As the thunder roared and lightning crashed all around, Lord William laughed and laughed and laughed. I doubt the process of transforming this carefree, nature-loving woman into his wife was an easy one, and it was, from the outset, rank with an overwhelming stench of hypocrisy as Lord William demanded that she would be his now, for he loved her, but that she would also renounce impious vows, give up her dark and detested arts, and with a breathtaking gall, he demanded that she broke free of the witchcraft that, quote, imprisoned her soul, unquote all while he was the one who had imprisoned her using the very witchcraft he accused her of. This was an evil man, and Lady Sybil did not submit willingly. But a priest was brought to banish her sins away, re-baptise her into the ways of the true, loving God, a priest who would then go on to marry her to this wicked man in the name of the same true, loving God. And the priest did exactly that, The two were married in the sight of his love. His love that seemed to care little for her happiness or what was good and right. A church and a god that seemed only to work for the wicked and the powerful. 
and which at every turn painted Lady Sybil as a monster, who was reformed now only through the love of a good man. And eventually, powerless as she was, like so many women through the ages, broken, Lady Sybil had little option but to submit. The two were wed, and soon after the very unhappily married couple moved to Burnshaw Tower, now Lord Williams, by dint of his control of his wife and her assets. She quickly sunk into misery in this new life as his slave, and Mother Helston, well, I'm sure she cackled to herself long and hard, probably while stirring a bubbling cauldron and stroking a toad. Now she was once again the most powerful and feared witch in all of the land. She'd shown the devil what happened when he chose to rise up another against her. She was head witch, and she'd well and truly nailed that glass ceiling shut behind her. And this is actually the last we see of Mother Helston in this story. Her victory seemingly complete. Not that Mother Helston was the only witch in the area. Let me take a bit of a tangent here, and kind of as an aside, but kind of because it leads into the end of our story, let me tell you of another witch. Goody Dickerson was no young radiant maiden lover of nature wandering the hills and sighing wistfully at sunsets, but neither was she a vengeful old hag well known for cursing and wickedness. She was a middle-aged woman, 35 or so, so, you know, middle-aged for the time, and a respected member of a small town. She kept a well-ordered household, helped out her husband, who was the miller, and she was industrious, thrifty, and had a cheese press. The whole neighbourhood could apparently attest to the fine quality of her cheese press, which is apparently not a euphemism, though it certainly sounds like one to me. Now, if you subscribe to somewhat outdated theories of maidens, mothers and crones, you might be thinking we now have an example of all three. Accepting that Goody Dickerson and her miller husband had no children. And by their age, there were plainly none to come. And her route into witchcraft? Well, to outsiders she appeared happily married. But in truth, it was only her husband who was happily married. Giles Dickerson the Miller filled his days with his work, at the wheel in the mill at the foot of some cliff in Cliviger Gorge. And that and the company he kept in the evenings gave him all he wanted in life. While his wife was left to look after the household. And felt keenly the lack of company from either husband or children. And the older she became, the more sorely she felt that lacking. The more she wished for, well, perhaps a husband who understood her and cared about her. But that, being an implausible fantasy, well, like many in similarly dreary positions, she wished at least she had some children to fill the days. Year after slow year passed by, and that wish got more fervent. But God in his infinite wisdom saw fit not to answer the prayers she fervently offered up, prayers that over many repetitions became addressed not directly to that absent Heavenly Father, but rather to any who would listen, offering anything she had for a better life, and most of all for the children which were cruelly denied her. A cheese press, even a much-admired one, could not make up for their absence. 
and somebody was listening to her prayers. One day an old woman arrived at her home when her husband was working in his mill. She told Goody that her prayers had been answered, and if she truly wanted her wishes fulfilled, all she had to do was come to a feast. And at this Goody began to tremble. She hadn't told anyone about her prayers. Uh, Who is is this feast with? Will will it be safe? And the old woman laughed and brooked no discussion on these points, instead laying it out. It's all the same to me, love. You can come or you cannot. You can sit here alone, bake your bannocks day in, day out, greet your husband from work every day with the same stale conversation for year upon year. Feel the loneliness gnaw up inside you, let it devour you all up, let the people admire your cheese press. But when you leave, they shall whisper of how barren you are, pitying that poor husband of yours. Go childless and miserable to your grave if you wish, or come with me and meet somebody who listens to your desires. And listening to that speech, and then looking around her oh-so-perfect cottage, was more than enough. Goody went to the feast. And after that, well, things in the household changed a lot. Soon it was the miller who was the melancholy one, and his wife full of laughter and joy. Now, oddly enough, no children actually appeared, but Goody Dickerson seemed to have a new taste for life, and she was often out for long periods enjoying it. For Giles the miller, his wife's newfound happiness was a source of sadness, irritation, jealousy even. A good solid relationship they had here, healthy sounding all round. Goody no longer felt the need to conform to the rigidities of early modern Lancashire life. At church on Sunday her place was empty, Giles left to sit alone, and he was shunned afterwards, as increasingly the household was by the rest of the town. Not that it mattered to Goody. Goody would spend her energy on her nights out of the house, engaging in all kinds of witchy revelry. Now, you might be thinking of those horrific rites we heard tell of Mother Helston conducting. But no, these just seem to be really good parties of the type that had been missing from her life for so long. There was singing and music, there was dancing, there was presumably magic tricks. And there was a great deal of food and drink which flowed freely, with particular emphasis on the kind of sweet things that seem passé to us in modern society, but just simply weren't available to women of her class back then. Puddings and creams and possets and all things delicious. And above all else, there was excellent company and camaraderie in the form of all the other witches. This was an active, supportive community. The whole children thing might not have worked out yet, but Goody had found a place in life and was having wonderful parties to boot. So different to the oppressive, stuffy home life she'd had before. And I'm mostly telling you this to show how it wasn't all doom and gloom for witches. However, things didn't go entirely her way, for there is a long and involved story about how Goody's involvement with these witches was, in time, proved beyond doubt to Giles the Miller. 
The story involves the miller's apprentice, a man named Robin, far braver and more resourceful than his master. Robin discovers that Goody is a witch and proves it to Giles, humiliating her in the process, for she is transformed into a horse by her own magic bridle. Standard witch behaviour. But I'm not going to tell that whole story because, well, we've enough of one on our hands which I meant to be telling now, but also because despite that tale seeming to end badly for Goody, well... Well, when she was discovered by her husband and his apprentice, I was expecting terrible things to befall her. And my sympathy is obviously with her, because her crimes seem to be limited to having a good time. Literally no evil at all, just experiencing some community and joy de vivre after years of stale marriage and housewife life. But still I expected horrible things to occur to her. And yet, nothing happens to her. There are no consequences. And instead, it is the miller who decides that he has had enough. At a time when Lancashire witches were famously persecuted, Giles the Miller does nothing to his wife at all, except resolve to see her even less. For which, yes, it's a low bar, but good on him, I suppose. And Goody Dickerson continues living her witchy party life. And that's that, a happy little tale about one woman's life being improved by embracing witchcraft and maybe she finally has some children. And I'm going to tell you now that we don't really return to Goody Dickerson. And I think we must imagine her happy. But let's move away from this joyous tale to rejoin Lady Sybil, for whom things were looking a lot less rosy. Almost a whole year had now passed since her capture, and many months since her wedding. Lord William Townley's wife sat in one chamber of the house that had been stolen from her. She who had seen the spectacular wonders of creation confined to this small, dull room. Her face was pale, her eyes red with weeping. She could concentrate on very little. She did very little but wring her hands, dream of a life very different from this. That all that had been taken from her would be restored, day after day of abject misery. No hope, no future, nothing. Would you like your freedom back? The voice seemed to come from all around her, echoing throughout the chamber. She looked up, could scarce believe it. There was no one else in the room. Had she finally gone mad? A pain came over her, sharp in her brow, where once her own blood had been smeared and words written. And the room shifted ever so slightly. Nothing at all changed, and yet it all moved. Hello again, Lady Sybil. And the smartly dressed man, who is more than a man, bowed to her. It's All Hallows' Eve tomorrow. Do you want to renew your contract? The spirit, it seemed, did not abandon his own to suffering as easily as God did. Lady Sybil's answer came swiftly and with great resolve. Yes, yes, I do, a thousand times yes. And the stranger beamed. A smile that might have been friendly, sweet, warmly pleased for her, and might also have looked friendly, sweet, warmly pleased for her, 
and which under all of that was barely concealing a great hunger. Either way, he said, there is an assembly tomorrow night. You know where. Be there and recover what was yours, for I will not forsake you. And then he was gone. Oh, she could barely contain her glee. The high hit her immediately, and she danced around her room with joy and had to stop herself hollering. Her sadness that had seemed so ingrained in who she was was swept away in an instant. And for the rest of that day, she struggled to maintain the facade of the same melancholia afflicted, quiet, reserved woman that she had been since her wedding. Whenever she was out of eyeshot of her captor and his servants, oh, oh, she jumped for joy. The next night just could not come soon enough. Now her captor that day was, as it happens, having an audience with Robin. Robin who, in a tale I've not told you, but I mentioned in a tale I have, I'm not sure why I made it this complicated, but this episode was overlong already, that Robin, the Robin who had discovered without doubt that Goody Dickerson was a witch. And Lord William was talking to him because a few days previously, his master, the miller, Giles Dickerson, had quit the county dramatically. Now, while this was a time when people often moved away, for there was always the alluring promise, false as it may be, of a life on the sea or over it, but it was usually young, single, landless, jobless men who left. Very rarely such an established part of the community as the miller. He had given his reasons to Lord William, his landlord, and was frank and to the point. Witches, my lord, so many of them in this county, causing me great mischief. I can't be doing with it any longer. The devil has his talons around this place and I cannot abide it. Lord William, who had made a deal with one witch which had allowed him to capture and marry another, nodded along politely and sympathetically, trying to make himself appear a little surprised and not make it totally obvious that he was implicated up to his eyeballs in the whole thing. Fair play to Giles and Miller, though, he didn't dob his wife in. Though I do expect that leaving the county without your wife, who didn't go to church regularly, while complaining of witches, might start tongue wagging. But you've got to respect him for that, at least. Lord William gave a half-hearted effort to talk him out of it, but the man wasn't for it. And the very day he visited, he was good to his word, and he left. The mill was now millerless which was a sorry state for a mill to be. The apprentice Robin, though, he did not have the fears of his former master, not because of disbelief, but because he felt himself a match for the witch's ways. And this ambitious young man saw an opportunity open up for himself, and he grasped it with both hands. His promotion from apprentice to miller was to be accelerated by a couple of decades. And that was why, as his wife cavorted around dreaming of her powers restored, Lord William was in a meeting with Robin, who had boldly approached his lord and offered to take on the mill immediately, and reassured William that he would have no problems with witches. They would quit the mill, or he, Robin, would drive them off. If you haven't worked out already, the young lad was what would be considered a bold and brave sort, a hero maybe. He lacked the rotten core of Lord William. He truly believed himself only to be a force of good against the wicked witches who harried the land. He, unlike the Lord, 
had never considered the possibility that the witches were anything but genuinely evil and would never have worked with one on pain of death. In his heart, he knew he was morally unblemished, one of the good guys, and the witches, they were evil. And, of course, all this assuredness of his own moral superiority meant that in real terms, he was at least as dangerous and possibly almost as evil as the self-knowingly wicked Lord William. Now, the young man's proposals were accepted. Why not? Lord Townley had already got what he wanted from witches, and so if this young protagonist-shaped man succeeded in ridding him of them, all the better. So, that very day, Robin had become the miller. No word still on what happened to Goody Dickerson, but I'm going to continue to assume that she lived deliciously without her unwanted husband, and was possibly now even better than before. After his meeting, Lord William returned back to his wife, who was feigning sadness while positively bouncing up and down with glee, trying desperately not to show it. And time for her dragged. But finally a night and most of a day passed, and All Hallows' Eve was upon them. That night, Lady Sybil crept out of bed, leaving her quote-unquote husband there all alone, thankfully sleeping quietly, and out she went, into the wild night. Her destination was a vast hollow, not too far distant, surrounded on all sides by crags and precipices and overhanging trees that clung onto the steep slope. Lady Sybil's heart raced, in fear of pursuit and in exhilaration at getting her powers back, getting her freedom back. In the moonlight, she spied him. The man, the spirit, she would not let herself entertain other options. He sat upon a great rock at the foot of a towering, blasted pine. Her heart leapt, and she suddenly became aware that there were a great many others there, women assembled in hushed reverence. It began, woman after woman, one by one, to receive the touch of his mark upon their brow, to receive the power that was due to them. She waited quietly, but impatiently. Her worries of being caught were now sweeping away, and exultation could truly take hold. Her powers would be returned. She just had to be patient. Finally, she was bidden. She rose, trembling with excitement. She made her way towards him. She was almost there, and... It was as though the earth rocked, but it wasn't the earth at all, it was everything. The things she saw, the stones and stars, trees and the night itself began to run like paints, intermixing. The crowd of women began to yell in terror, running hither and thither and she ran with them. She tripped and fell onto the writhing, hissing earth, heard a great rush of wings and a loud, dissonant scream of terror, and everything changed. The scene shifts, and if this was the kind of story where there was text at the bottom of the screen, when scenes changed, that text would read Cliviger Mill, All Hallows' Eve, 11.45pm, so that we could establish the chronology for ourselves. And if it was, then the text would be in some 
almost illegible gothic font. Robin lay awake, a lantern burned by his side. He was staring into the rafters, listening to the gentle splashes from the millstream outside and the distant call of owls. He was not attempting to sleep, rather he was alert, on watch for the witches that had made his master's life a misery. With his faith, his brash youth and his previous encounter with witches, he was supremely confident of his own abilities. But Halloween had been unremarkable so far. While elsewhere in the world ghosts and goblins were riding wild, the she were leaving their barrows, the elves were riding out, everyone was hailing the pumpkin king, here, it seemed, all was calm. But of course the witching hour had not yet arrived. And when it did... In the distance there was a tremendous boom, much like a fighter jet going supersonic. A reference point Robin did not have, but... Much like that, it shook the very foundations of that isolated mill and the trees all around. The windows rattled, the wooden beams creaked alarmingly, and mortar dust fell from the stonework. Robin was up and out of bed in an instant, and he barely had time to respond to the tremors when the mill was invaded. Through the windows, down the chimney, under the doors, and through the many openings to the wheel. This was designed as a working building, not a fortress and it had a great many egress points for them to flow in through. Them, a great company of cats and rats, toads, bats and snakes, all manner of the most foul and wicked beasts rushing into the building. More such creatures than he'd ever seen together, crawling and wriggling over each other, howling with the most fearful cacophony of bestial calls. They seemed to not be paying attention to him, not here to take him down, but, but almost incidentally they scratched and pinched and bit him as they jostled around. The lantern was knocked from the table, went out, and the mill was cast in darkness. But though this was not what he was expecting, Robin was ready. He grasped firmly the knife that he had readied for the witches, and he sliced and stabbed and thrust into the mass of them. He couldn't aim, he flailed wildly, but judging by the horrified shrieks of pain, the blade was making contact, cutting into flesh and fur and scales. And at this unexpected, spirited resistance, the horde began to fall back in great discombobulation and disarray. Encouraged by his success, Robin redoubled his efforts, as a good hero should, and he was rewarded with a full-blown rout. Out, back into the Halloween night they went. His knife arched this way and that, and further cuts were made as the wicked creatures fled, and finally a great wail came from some great black cat who was the last out, only just squeezing under the door as Robin swiped at its tail. And all fell quiet. The whole thing from start to finish was over in a matter of minutes. Robin stood in the darkness, panting loudly. He was awaiting a regrouping, a second, better prepared assault. But save for the susurration from the trees, the splashing of the stream and the hoots of the owls, all was quiet. When he felt recovered and bold enough to move, he found the lantern and relit it, raised it up so he could look around. The floor of the mill showed the traces of battle, bits of fur, the occasional spatter of blood. And one thing more substantial. He squatted down, a cat's paw. 
Somewhat gingerly, he picked it up. A trophy, a sign of his valour, of his survival of this battle with those surely hell-sent forces. He wrapped the paw up in a piece of cloth and placed it on a table. He remained ready and waiting for an hour, perhaps more, but with nothing else happening, the sheer force of his recent exertions hit him. Sleep overcame him. Still clutching his knife, he took to bed and fell into a deep slumber. The sun dawned on All Saints' Day, a cold but glorious morning it was, but at Burnshaw Tower the atmosphere did not match the mood of the weather. Lady Sybil had fallen ill during the night, but had been removed from her bedchamber, put in separate quarters, where she was being tended to by a nurse. Which struck her husband as strange, because he could not remember her leaving him in the night, but the nurse had told him firmly not to come in. And now he was stalking the battlements of his stolen tower, worrying presumably that if she really was sick, he'd have to hunt and capture another wife. He surveyed his lands without much enthusiasm, but spotted somebody coming over the hill at great speed, waving and hollering. It was Robin, the miller, as of yesterday at least. Now if it wasn't for the man's very obvious, incredible excitement, Lord William might have had a servant turn him away. But as it was, Robin was absolutely insistent, and the Lord met him at the door. You've tussled with the witches, assumed Lord William. Yes, I believe I have, but I got a fair go at them. And out of his mouth tumbled a disjointed, hurried description of the events that transpired that previous night, ending with Robin declaring that he had gone to bed with a paw of one of those great cats as a trophy. And it was this that had caused him to rush here so swiftly for he swung his satchel from his shoulder and produced something from it. But that's not it, you see, he said, a wild gleam in his eyes. For this morning, my lord, I turned to that paw and... Unable to hold himself back any longer, he pulled the wrappings from the object and held it aloft with a flourish. Lord William gasped and recoiled. For what Robin clutched was not a paw, no longer, but a detached human hand mangled at the wrist, marked with blood. After his first initial shock, worse came for Lord William. His own blood ran cold when he saw the ring upon that hand, a ring he recognised well. For he had put it onto that unwilling finger. Rage overcame him, and he snatched up the hand from Robin, turned and strode inside, muttering to himself, and the new miller was left there, holding the wrappings at the gates of Burnshaw Tower, which were closed in his face. Lord William burst into the chamber where his wife slept. The nurse who had denied him before cowered when she saw the anger in his face. My darling, said Lord William, how are you? I hear you're very sick. She, she is. She should not be disturbed, my lord. But he cared not. Made for the bedside. Wake up! Sick are you? His wife turned herself to the wall, said nothing. I tell you what, let me be your doctor. Give me your hand, darling, so I may feel for your pulse. Weakly, she produced her left hand from under the covers, and he grasped it forcefully, 
Oh, thank you, dutiful wife. And now, the other. She made no movement. No, no. Oh, how silly of me, he said, letting her left hand fall and hitting himself on the head in a gesture of mock surprise. How could you give it to me when I have it right here? And from his coat he produced the hand, grabbed hold of Lady Sybil's hair, pulled her up, thrust the hand into her face. You got caught, witch. Blasphemous woman, I saved you from this and this is how you repay me? Now my wife is a witch, lacking a hand. He pulled back the bedding and her bloody stump was now revealed. Well done, you deserve a a big hand. He flung the hand at her, and from his side he drew his sword from his scabbard with a flourish. I, your righteous lord, shall rid this world of the impiety of witches. I shall scourge the county of them, starting here, in this bed. He raised his blade up high, looked down at Lady Sybil, and to his shock he saw a glimpse of triumph pass across her face, as though she were willing him on. If she couldn't be free in the manner she desired, well, she could still be free. This simply enraged him more, and he swung his blade down to murder his own wife. But the weapon was stayed, held aloft by a power unseen. With utter confusion, William tugged on the blade, once, twice, but it was held firm in the air, and then Lady Sybil was out of bed, shrieking, chanting. He fell backwards, the sword clattered harmlessly to the floor, the nurse fled the room as convulsions rippled across Lady Sybil's face, and she screamed. Lord William scrambled, desperately tried to reach for the sword, but then Lady Sybil stopped, and the room went silent. She stood over him, regarded him. You are right, of course, husband. I was a witch, my body given over to a demon. I performed abominable actions, joined a beastly horde, participated in hellish rites, and my hand was taken from me. And then she gave a broad and terrible smile, this innocent woman who had simply wanted to be one with nature, to enjoy the great beauty this world has to offer, and had found herself enslaved by a man. Surely I deserved that punishment for the terrible deeds I perpetrated. She looked down at him and tilted her head. And yet, I find myself wondering, was it all a dream? Perhaps nothing at all happened last night. And she held up her right arm, and on the end of it, where there should have been a stump, where there was a stump just a few moments before, was her hand. Just as before, save a slight mark around the wrist. But notably, absent her wedding ring. She smiled. Lord William looked up in terrified astonishment, cowering before her. And let's freeze frame right there. Now, listener, there is an ending to this story, 
as it is usually told. And then there is an ending which I find myself more satisfied with. So here I'm going to leave the choice of what happens up to you. Whether you trust better the first recorder of this tale, John Roby, a man famed as an unreliable narrator of the very highest order, or if instead you trust me, a relatively unknown narrator, but also, I would like to think, an unreliable narrator of the very highest order. The choice is yours, or maybe you can just leave it here, freeze-framed forever, credits roll, as a healed Lady Sybil looks down upon her husband. But if not that, well, choose. Let's do a run, Lola, run. There is a loud snap and time is back. Lady Sybil, standing in front of her husband, collapses dramatically to the floor. Lord William, his desire for vengeance forgotten, takes her up, carries her to the bed, and as he does so, she flutters her eyes up at him and begins to murmur. What have I done? A realisation is sweeping over her as she feels the unnatural extremity at the end of her arm. It's not hers, and that focuses her thoughts on what she has become. I, I, I have defiled and degraded myself, supped with the devil and his minions, and surely I have set myself on a path that can lead only to hell, the damnation of my eternal soul. She is exhausted and crying as her strength seems to ebb away. It is apparent to Lord William that her death is soon at hand, and the infernal realms would be her forever destination. But Lord William would not see it end so. He called for the priest who had married them, and the man arrived in a matter of hours. The priest sat with the dying woman, and he took from her a confession of her sins. With the last of her voice and strength, she described the pact that she had entered into, the fear she had for her soul, and how now she was utterly repentant. But surely that mattered not, for with her body marked twice by the devil on forehead and hand, she could not be saved. But it was not so, the priest told her, for all who truly repent and find faith in Christ, all can be saved. And he in turn summoned colleagues, and between them, in the late hours of the night and early hours of the morning, they used all their powers of faith and prayer to break the devil's hold over Lady Sybil. They worked almost all through the night, but eventually had to retire, and in the morning they returned to find Lady Sybil no more. Her beautiful corpse lay in that bed, and on her face a look of hallowed peace. She was free from the clutches of Lord William and the devil, both. And record scratch, freeze frame, rewinding noises. And we're back. Back as Lady Sybil stands over Lord William, hand restored, wedding ring nowhere to be seen. She smiles down at him triumphantly. He lunges for his sword, which she glances at, and it moves away from him, animated by some invisible power. She doesn't say a word. She doesn't even seek revenge. She looks at her restored hand, flexing the fingers on it a few times. And then she walks out of that room, down the stairs, and out of Burnshaw Tower, 
her former home. And she does not look back. Lord William goes on to make it well known to everyone in the community that she died that day, and the nurse and the other servants do not contradict this story. He tells of how she recounted on her deathbed, of how it was all sorted out, and of how sad he is, while living in constant dread that she will return. But Lady Sybil, former maid of Burnshaw Tower, is never seen again. Credits roll. Now, whichever version of this ending you choose to believe, there are a number of loose ends here. What happens to Lord William Townley, to Goody Dickerson, to Robin, and actually to Mother Helston, whose revenge has either been sealed or utterly undone by these events, depending on which version of this ending you believe? No answers are forthcoming, as is so often the case with the stories I tell. But regardless of what happens to those characters, As the years pass and they drift into memory, the legend grows up that Lady Sybil is buried up on Eagle's Crag, her very favourite place, and yet also the place where she was hunted and captured. A place of mixed memories. And so it is this we return at the very end of the tale where in All Hallows' Eve you can see a ghostly huntsman and hound chase a milk-white doe to the edge of that great precipice, reliving time and time again the events of centuries past. And personally, I like to think that occasionally a still-living Lady Sybil, youthful as ever, comes to watch that spectral chase play out, smiles at the memory of a time she has long since moved past, And when it's over, she puts up a hood and she levitates up into the night sky. And now I've got a longish discussion section for you, which is about to tip this into the longest episode ever. Sorry about that. The last one was a short one, so applause for that, please. So, this story appears first in this format in John Roby's 1829 work, Traditions of Lancashire. All the bits about Goody Dickerson, Robin, the Miller and the Hand are taken from a much earlier play called The Late Lancashire Witches, from 1634, while the bits about Lady Sybil and Lord William and the deer, that, as far as I can tell, first crops up in Roby. There are a few later versions of this story which vary in the details and are considerably shorter, but all of these people seem aware of Roby's version and are usually writing quite a bit after him, so even where they vary, I think it's most likely that Roby's version was their source. Let's start with a bit of a discussion of John Roby. I've mentioned him a few times this episode, and this is the fourth story of his I've covered on this podcast. And I think that's because when I started reading lots and lots and lots of folk stories, he was one of my favourite. I've done far too many of his versus many other equally notable or more notable folklorists, 
and I probably need to do some more stories from the south when I'm looking at England, my own bias there showing. I will redress that at some point. But yes, I've talked about this guy before, and I've actually written a biography and discussion of his works on the Tales of Britain and Ireland website, so if you're really interested, go there and read that. But to summarise that, Roby was born in Wigan in Lancashire in 1793, and he lived in Lancashire most of his life. He was middle class, and his profession was technically a banker, but I don't know how much work he actually did, because this appeared to give him a lot of time to indulge in a wide range of other interests. He was a writer, a poet, an illustrator, and interested in architecture and botany, aside from many other areas. His folkloric works only extend to two relatively slight volumes, collectively called The Traditions of Lancashire, consisting of 20 local stories. Most of those are distinguished by being set in very real locations in Lancashire, and of course the Lady Sybil story is no exception to that. Roby is a relatively early collector of folk tales, not one of the very first, but kind of the second generation. And his folk stories read quite differently from most of what comes later. They are very involved, and for want of a better word, literary. They're stuffed full with so many adjectives to the level that would make a GCSE English teacher cry with pride. They are very much not oral tales faithfully recorded as lots of local folklore is, or at least claims to be. Now all of this was very much his intention, what he felt his audience wanted. He actually says that he wanted to present these tales, quote, divested of the dust and dross in which the originals are all too often disfigured, so as to appear worthless and uninviting, unquote. Wow. Which... Yikes, that opinion was to change over time, but was very popular when he published. So his stories became kind of famed, not just generally, but with some big names in folklore. And his stories have remained very popular ever since, and are really pretty vital as a starting point at least for anyone wanting to tell stories from Lancashire today. However, this issue of his very verbose, flowery style has left many questions regarding the reliability of these tales. For some of these, there are earlier sources. One I've told before is taken straight from our Fury and Legend. This one has that play I mentioned. But for stories for which he is the first source, it's very, very difficult to tell how much he made up. It's clear that all the stories are very much altered by him in the telling. As one 20th century folklorist, much more critical, puts it, quote, Roby uncovered these traditions and then buried them in cumbersome fictions, unquote. For instance, as we'll see in a bit more detail with the story of Lady Sybil, he has drawn on a number of early sources, possibly combined that with a tale that might have existed in the area, or he might have invented and it's completely impossible to tell exactly what he did, and he left no notes. So not a great author for academically understanding folktales and their origins, but we do get some great stories told by him, even if they have been touched by his literary hand. And I hope you'll agree that this was one of them. And if you're thinking this story was a bit long, well, Roby's writing is fairly detailed. So this is one of the very few tales I've told in this podcast where I have shortened it rather a lot. 
rather than extended it in the telling, as is my usual way. For all the criticism that's levelled at him, I've got to say I feel a bit of a kinship with John Roby. Though my writing is not on a par with his. To give you a bit of a taste of his writing, I thought I'd just read a bit that's talking about something relevant to the next part of this discussion section. And that's a bit of a preamble to this story that he gives about how witchcraft used to be very much believed in. And his opinions as to the, uh, well, the harm of that belief, I suppose. Taste these adjectives. Quote, The notion of witchcraft was no innocent and romantic superstition, no scion of an elegant mythology, but was altogether vulgar, repulsive, bloody and loathsome. It was a foul ulcer on the face of humanity. Other vagaries of the mind have been associated with lofty or with gentle feelings. They have belonged more to sportiveness than to criminality. They are the poetry interspersed on the pages of the history of opinions. They seem to be dreams of sleeping reason, and not the putrescence of its mouldering carcass. But this has no bright side, no redeeming quality whatsoever. Unquote. What Roby is really trying to emphasise there, if you didn't get it through all of that, is how this belief in witchcraft has had terrible results. And he goes on to say how this is particularly manifested in the Lancashire Witch Trials. And you know, this is an area which I find myself broadly agreeing with him on. And it's in these Lancashire Witch Trials that we find the origin of a good part of this story. I made passing reference to the trials in the tale, but didn't go into them at any length. And I can't hear either. This is the kind of stuff that could fill not just a podcast episode, but a whole podcast series. So I'm going to try and be brief in a summary here. In 1612, Lancashire was the site of what is probably the most famous or second most famous of all English witch trials. That of the Pendle Witches. And a content warning here, by the way. I'm going to tell this history in a fairly blasé, neutral style, but really this is pretty horrific stuff. The Pendle Witch Trials were very well publicised at the time, and they resulted in the execution of ten people for witchcraft, with the allegations particularly concerning murders they were supposed to have committed. They were concentrated on two families, known as the Demdike and Chattox families, members of those families accusing each other of witchcraft, as well as people from outside the families accusing them. The details of the allegations and confessions that were extracted in these trials involved the kind of pacts that cropped up in the story, exchanging souls with the devil for great powers, consorting with demons, and of course, allegations of maleficium, that is, using magic to cause harm. This idea of satanic witchcraft was very much the standard view of witches at the time, a view that crops up in many of the other witch trials that were conducted. Though it should be noted, it's not always been the view of evil witches, but it was very much at this time. And there is a very definite through line that can be traced from the details of the confessions and accusations in those trials to the content of the story I've just told you. Now, in the centuries since the Pender Witch Trials, the area has become notorious, and it's full today even of references to witches. There's a museum, a witch trail, and your usual tourist attractions that build up the idea of the witches. There's a shop called Witches Galore, which was a personal favourite, but there are various businesses, pubs, garages, and all sorts of others, using witch iconography. 
some of the attractions really do emphasise the genuinely horrific nature of it all, and others lean more into a kind of fun, scary Halloween witch style. And I myself have mostly done the latter by telling this story. Now, while the Pendle Witch Trial is the most notorious trial, there was also a series of later trials of Lancashire witches, in 1633 to 1634, and those are much more directly related to our story, and just as bad really. These cases started off after a ten-year-old boy claimed that he met two greyhounds on the road who turned into people, people he recognised, one of whom was a neighbour called Francis Dickerson and he also claimed that they then took him to a witch's sabbath and introduced him to the devil. Perfectly normal stuff. And yes, you heard that right, Francis Dickerson. The witch in the story is named after a real victim of persecution as a witch. And while the boy's story seems utterly ridiculous, it was widely accepted in the vicinity, and more and more accusations came out including one fairly amazing one that a woman animated a pail of water to come running to her, and another woman apparently admitted to being a witch basically off her own back, and gave grand descriptions of witch meetings, along with devils and transformations and evil spells, confessing to the whole works. I've read one account that says that 60 people were eventually accused, and 17 were found guilty. However, unlike in the earlier trials, the judge was clearly a bit less happy with this result. He wanted a second opinion, and he referred the matter upwards, upwards to the very highest court in the land, the Privy Council, based in London. So, some of the accused, and their accusers too, were sent to London for a second series of trials, with most of the accused protesting their innocence. However, by the point that all this had happened, many people had already died in jail in Lancashire. When those who survived got to London, there was a great deal of attention on the case at the very highest levels, including from the King, King Charles I himself, who met the accused witches and questioned them. Trials went on in London, and to cut a long story short, at this point they separated the boy who'd made the accusations from his father his father who had some particular grudges against some of the accused witches. And at that point, the boy eventually said he'd made the whole thing up to avoid a beating for being home late. And even that seems a bit suspicious, the involvement of the father was much suspected. And I'd love to think that, after all that, the accused witches who had survived were released but there are no records that show that. And even more damning and depressingly, there are records from a couple of years later that refer to most of the supposed witches still being in prison in London. And that's sadly the last we hear of them. And I'm fairly sure you're aware of this, but just to emphasise it, obviously none of the people in either the 1612 trials or these trials were actually witches. These were all innocent people being imprisoned and murdered. A pretty dark set of events. Events that confirm Roby's view that belief in evil satanic witches was still very strong and widespread. 
and many innocent people suffered because of that belief. So why am I telling you all this? Well, it does link to the story. Because at the very time the trial was going on, two prominent London playwrights, Thomas Hayward and Richard Brome, who clearly had their fingers on the pulse of current events, wrote a play about it, called The Late Lancashire Witches. And it was performed as the trials were in progress. And not just performed anywhere, but at the Globe Theatre, by the King's Men, that is the acting company to which William Shakespeare belonged, though he had been dead for nearly two decades at this point, but, but I'm just making the point to say this wasn't just any theatre. This was a very prominent play. And it's in that play that many of the events that I told you in this story crop up. The mill, the cat, the hand as proof, the horse transformation and magical bridle I mentioned more briefly. The plot of it is a bit difficult to summarise. It's kind of a farcical comedy, but it basically involves the Lancashire witches causing havoc, being found out, and eventually being arrested. The names of the witches in the play are taken directly from the real accused brought to London. In its events, the play combines actual confessions taken directly from the trial, that magical bridal, for instance, with other motifs about witches that crop up very regularly elsewhere. The whole paw and hand chopped off bit is a regular in folk stories. There are many variants of it in England, but it also seems particularly prevalent in Germany, where there's loads of versions of it. And actually they seem to have listed it pretty wholesale, not just the hand being chopped off, but actually the whole thing about somebody watching a mill specifically at night. Other aspects that don't come from the accusations in the trial were lifted from chapbooks at the time with oft-repeated ideas about witches. So to summarise the point here, and bring it back to the story I've just told. This play was written in 1634 about Lancashire witches based on a real witchcraft trial, as well as those playwrights incorporating well-known stories about witches. This then connected all those specific witch stories to the Lancashire Witches. 200 years later, these pop up as part of Roby's story, as you've just heard. Roby is very aware of the play, he even mentions it directly in the text. But what all of this leaves me very unclear with is the origins of, well, the rest of the story, the stag and the ghostly hunt and, well, Lady Sybil and Lord William, which seems to me to really come from a totally separate story. Now, I don't know whether Roby combined two stories that existed himself, or if they were already combined earlier and he was repeating that tradition, or if he entirely invented the Lady Sybil, Lord William story, though that doesn't seem entirely likely to me, but it's certainly a possibility. Now, unlike some research where I've become fairly sure I've covered all the material that is in any way easily accessible, Here there's been a lot of material to wade through, and I think I might have missed something, so if somebody knows an earlier version of the Lord William, Lady Sybil story, I would absolutely love to hear that. My spidey senses tell me it could be out there, I can't find it, and so at the moment, this thing starts with Roby. What is clear to me is that these two stories don't combine together particularly neatly. Even though I also told them as one, I did make some fairly sizeable tweaks to how Roby told it, and I reckon he isn't too happy with how they fit together either. I made several references to having changed the story throughout the telling, particularly by inserting that potential happy ending, 
which just isn't in any of the versions, but to me reads as perfectly plausible if we take it that Lord William is the source of the story and, and an unreliable narrator himself. The ending of the story as Roby tells it, where Lady Sybil just decides she's been terrible and she's going to be good now, actually seems pretty odd to me, and I don't just mean that because I don't find it satisfying myself, but on Roby's own terms, because his story is full of all the moral ambiguity about witches are supposed to be bad, but in Lady Sybil's case she doesn't do anything evil. He knows this. He is, he is clear that Lord William is the evil one here, and Lady Sybil is being mistreated. It's all there, and yet, in the end, it's as if he has to come down on an ending that fits into a nice, clean, Christian moral framework, and utilise all those same satanic witchcraft tropes from centuries before. But to do that, he seems to have to jump through quite a few hoops. What is actually quite unclear to me is what is happening for most of the end of the story. The whole bit about Lady Sybil being at the ritual, and then suddenly she's at the mill and her hands cut off? This speaks to me as an artefact of the disparate stories rammed together, and I dealt with it by not really mentioning it. In his telling, Roby also seems pretty aware that this is not ideal, and he comes up with a long-winded explanation of it. He says that Lady Sybil actually achieves her realisation she's done wrong and needs to repent at the Assembly of the Witches, and this is what breaks up the Assembly. And then she faints, and... When she's fainted, she gets possessed by a demon, and it's while possessed by that demon that she turns into a cat that goes to the mill and gets its paw chopped off. And it's also the demon that returns her body to Burnshaw Tower. And at that point, the demon's plan is that Lord William kills her, and so Hell gets her soul. Lord William's sword blow is then prevented by, quote, another power, by which Roby means God not Lady Sybil or her allies, as the story seems to suggest. And in that version, that then leads the priests to have the demon cast out, and provides no explanation of why the hand appears on her wrist again, that's just kind of missed out. Basically, she's saved by some very active divine intervention. And it just seems a bit weird, to be honest, and I think Roby believes this too, because he doesn't tell the story like that, he just adds that on at the end, much as I've done, to say, this is one explanation for all the stuff that went down. And I thought I'd share that with you as well, just because I found it very odd. It is, apparently, an explanation. Okay, so I think that pretty much covers the origin of the story, only a couple more points to make, promise. Just to say that, as with most of the tales of Roby, just to say, first of all, that as with most tales told by Roby, the places mentioned in this really exist. You can plot this tale pretty much on a map, dead on. Cliviger Gorge exists, the Townley family exists, Burnshaw Tower did exist, it's now destroyed, and the same for Hapton Tower. Eagle's Crag, still very much in existence. You can walk up there, and there's even a brewery named after it, Eagle's Crag Brewery, based in nearby Todmorden. Which... Sort of brings this all back to Todmorden in the end. Well, hey, I haven't actually tasted any of their beers, but as a big beer fan, I'm going to recommend you go and try them out anyway. Believe you me, I'll be seeking out their beers next time I'm in Todd. Oh, and one last little tidbit. I do not know how accurate this is, but while Hapton Tower seems to have been destroyed for some centuries, Burnshaw Tower was still around until the 1860s, so it would have been around when Roby was writing. But the reason for its destruction 
was because, quite separate from this legend, there was another legend that said there was a pot of gold under the tower. People went digging for it, undermined the foundations of the building, and it collapsed. Which, if that is true, it is frankly amazing. Okay, that has got to be it for this episode. I know some people have requested shorter episodes. I'm so sorry if you're still here. Thank you for being here. If you're not, then I understand. For that reason, I'm not going to include lots of detail about my plans next, except to say that, as with all my extended breaks on the podcast, this doesn't mean it's coming to an end. I'm very much committed to keeping this going, even if it doesn't always seem like it. I will be doing more podcasts and more live shows soon. And on that vein, thank you, of course, to all my patrons who haven't had an episode for a while, but they only pay when there is one. So that's handy. I actually know what the next one is going to be. It's kind of a fairy tale from Ireland about, well, witches. It's the next thing I'm working on, so hopefully that'll be done by the end of September. Fingers crossed. With the next actual episode, end of October-ish. Let's go with that. Thank you so much to all of you for signing up. If you haven't signed up already and you want more Tales of Britain and Ireland, there are 10 episodes there now, and that 11th soon. And a shout-out this time to Jack, to Anna, to Tearless Rain, and to Stormageddon Dark Lord, all of whom have signed up since the last episode. And if you're not a patron and you're just listening, then thank you very much to yourself as well. Obviously, you already know that sharing and leaving reviews is the best way to help the podcast out, so if you can do that, please do. Next time, as I very slowly crawl towards the 50th episode, we'll be leaving the countryside behind and going again to the big city. This time with a selection of creepy tales from Scotland's largest city, Glasgow. And I very much hope you can join me for that. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm